I'm Carly, and this is Toxic Workplace Antidote Edition, a series of bonus episodes where I talk to experts and thought leaders about toxic workplaces and how to survive them. In this episode, I talk to Leslie Miller, a licensed independent clinical social worker who takes a mind-body approach to physical and mental health. She specializes in trauma therapy and healing from narcissistic abuse, which, as we know from some of the stories on this podcast, can happen in the workplace. You're going to love this interview with Leslie. I'm here with Leslie Miller to talk about mental abuse in the workplace. Hi, Leslie. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? I'm good. Very happy to have you on the show. You bring a wealth of knowledge around trauma, abuse, specifically narcissistic abuse. But before we dive into that, let's hear a little bit about your background. Yeah. So I'm a therapist and coach in private practice, and I'm based in the Boston area. I've been a therapist since 1998. I worked in various mental health settings for hospitals, you name it. I also worked for organizations that did behavioral health services. I became interested in narcissism when I did, particularly when I did family therapy, and I was working with parents. I eventually went into working in the court system as a custody evaluator where I spent about six years. And my feeling was that in respect to what's known as high conflict divorce where there's custody and they're really heavily court involved, I did see a lot of abuse and narcissism and other personality factors that I felt made it impossible for people to come to healthy agreements or be able to co-parent with any degree of being able to put the child first. That was very sad to me. The issue of narcissistic abuse just really grew out of years of working in the field, working with families, sort of seeing people really struggle in all walks of life. My feeling was that when someone was dealing with someone that's highly narcissistic, you know, you see things like post-separation abuse where no matter what, things just don't ever seem to get resolved, that there's no court that can make the problem stop. There's no therapy that can seem to make it stop. There's no attorney that can make it stop for you. There's just a continuation of it. So my practice is really focused on helping people you know, recognize where they are, figure out what they want to do, work through their trauma, and move on with their lives. Yeah, so it's interesting how you're saying you saw it, how you saw narcissism affect all walks of life. And I think narcissist awareness is becoming more and more prevalent because people are realizing that they're dealing with them. And it's not just at home or um, with your family, it also can be at the workplace. I mean, the odds of somebody encountering a narcissist or possibly somebody that's abusive is highly likely. Do you agree? It, it is. It's 
statistically, the, the odds are high that you will come in contact with someone who's highly narcissistic, maybe, you know, a psychopath. And no one really has exact numbers because people that have personality disorders don't go into treatment. Hardly, it hardly ever happens. You know, the prevalence, I think, is a lot higher than is even known statistically. So I feel like the odds for people are high that in a corporate setting or in any, in any work environment, you know, you're going to be dealing with people with severe characterological issues. There's some inevitability to it, you know. Right. And it's hard, like you say, there's not data out there because how are you going to prove it? You can't get the hard evidence to prove it. You can just get these stories of people saying this is what happened, but you can't really measure it because people would say, well, you can't just blanket apply narcissism to anybody that has toxic behavior. But one of the things when you reached out to me about how narcissistic people get positions of power in the workplace, what do you think helps them become successful? Like how, what is it that narcissists have over people that aren't narcissistic? Right, right. Well, I mean, when you look at the definition of what what is narcissism, you know, if you're talking about a narcissist that is grandiose, they maybe exaggerate their talents and abilities. Maybe they, they outright lie, depending on how malignant they are and, and what they're willing, how far they're willing to go. That grandiosity in a corporate setting can come across as confidence, you know, particularly when we're talking about male employees. So, you know, there there are some real gender differences when we talk about grandiosity, but it can come across as confident in the workplace that this person is a go-getter or they're able to do hard things, have difficult conversations, not afraid to take risks. They're not afraid to be in a profession where they're highly visible. In fact, they gravitate toward upper-level management, maybe startup companies, medical fields, certainly things like sales, law, anything creative, media. Those are fields that, you know, visibility and attention is really what a, a narcissistic person seeks, and that fits the bill going both ways. Narcissist also has a, a lot of entitlement, so, you know, they're willing to to take credit for things that maybe they didn't rightfully earn. So someone who's working extra hours to get something done to so kind of quote unquote make the boss look good. And then, you know, the boss kind of stands up and grandstands on how hard he works or she works, never really crediting the people that make that happen behind the scenes. Um, and that can come across as just being really competitive. So, you know, one of the other hallmarks of narcissism is that the belief, along with the entitlement, that they're superior. You know, they don't always necessarily believe it, but they certainly promote that that's what they believe. So being better than the next guy and only wanting to affiliate with other special high-status people that can be seen as competitive. So in an organization, what works for the organization will allow for tremendous negative behaviors because the organization sees it as, you know, 
helps their bottom line in some way, well, okay, we're going to put this attention-seeking person out front because it's making us look good. It's making us a profit. It's functioning in some way to support the organization. Yes, and and the people promoting don't necessarily even see or know that this person is an, a narcissist. I think that's what maybe people that haven't experienced this get confused on is like, it's hard to know when you're in it, if somebody is a narcissist. I mean, would you say there's clear signs that are red flags right out the gate? Or would you say it's something more specifically in a workplace setting? Um, because it in business or in any sort of organization that has rankings, you could be a competitive person. So how would you know if somebody is narcissistic versus a, just a normal, competitive, highly driven person? Yeah, that's a great question. It's sometimes hard to figure these things out. It's very easy to get drawn in by a narcissist. You know, often they're really charming. Like when we talk about romantic relationships and we talk about what happens early on is sort of this love bombing stage, which is followed by being devalued. That happens in the workplace too. You know, at first, maybe this person was on their best behavior and you really felt a sense of connection or, you know, this is somebody I want to work with or learn from or... Um, at least have a good working relationship. And what happens is, is that it turns very suddenly and very unpredictably on a dime. And you feel like the bottom just dropped out and you don't really know what happened. And we tend to look for, you know, it's very natural to blame yourself, particularly, you know, in a work setting, are we, we have goals, we have things that we're expected to achieve. And so when those things don't happen, it's very natural to blame yourself. You know, all of us who've ever worked for a, a corporation or have had a boss of any kind, you know, we, we, have to, we have to take in feedback. You know, hey, that could have been better, or this is what you could have done differently, and, and I'd like to see that next time. A narcissist is not going to play fair. It's going to be, you know, often a lot of head game, you know, behind it. It's mm -hmm. maybe you're great one day, but you're the worst the next. And it's that walking on eggshells feeling that I think really tells the story that you may be dealing with somebody with a character disorder, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that has a lot of narcissistic traits, possibly um, antisocial traits, particularly if you feel like they really don't have empathy. You know, you're starting to figure out that they really don't care about my aspirations at this company, or mm -hmm. they really don't care that I have a sick kid at home today and I need to leave to, to take them to the doctor, or they really don't care that I haven't taken a vacation in two years and I have a chance to go, but there's something they want me to do and, and, and give that up. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are kind of ex more extreme examples. But I think that sort of that gut feeling that I never know what this person's going to do next, mm -hmm. what kind of mood they're going to be in. 
I never know if I'm doing a good job or not. I never know if I'm meeting the expectations. I never know if I'm going to be here next week, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Right. And just that uneasy feeling, yes. I think, tells the story. You know, the the terminology for narcissistic abuse is fairly recent. I mean, for a long time, abuse was considered primarily physical. Little by little, people started to talk more about verbal abuse and psychological abuse. And there was a period of time where there was very little information out there. There was a book... Uh, by Patricia Evans that was like life-changing. It was all about verbal abuse. And she talked about every kind of style of verbal abuse, and, and she talked about the personality traits of the verbal abuser. And she never once used the word narcissist, but really that's what she was describing. That's a wonderful book. Wonderful. There's there's a couple of them. She's a, a trailblazer. I highly recommend that. She gives some really good strategies of how to respond to, to specific um, scenarios of verbal abuse. But when we're talking about psychological abuse or verbal abuse, it never really went far enough in terms of the why. Because people would be left with, why me? Why, why are they hurting me? Why me? What, you know, that why question would come up and come up and come up. And what is helpful about being able to call something by a more specific name, and, you know, we're not diagnosing, you know, I can't diagnose someone a narcissist if they're not sitting in front of me. But I can, if, if I hear that someone has abused you without empathy for years on it, then we can pretty, we can, we can make a connection and we can explain it that it isn't the, the why part of it starts to melt away. And it's like, oh, it was never about me. And that's ultimately very healing that you have an understanding that you were never there. You were, you were largely invisible as you received this form of abuse. So on the narcissistic spectrum, because you have the malignant narcissist and the covert narcissist, and one mm -hmm. of the, one of the things about a narcissist is they're going to be nice to you and charm you and build you up as long as you're serving their needs. And I think in a workplace setting, it could go on for a very long time. It could be years that you're serving their need in the workplace in some way. Maybe the, the process or task hasn't changed or maybe something happens and now you're seeing a different side and you start seeing a side of them that they've been able to hide for a long time. In my own experience and people I've talked to, it's like they stay in these workplaces for a really long time and it's really hard then to get out. And it is similar to a romantic relationship. It's harder to uncover. Right, right. I think it can be very difficult to un uncover um, because the narcissist will go to greater lengths to hide their behavior in the workplace than they will at home, you mm -hmm. know, at, at home or in a relationship, at a certain point, people start to just sort of let it all hang out, you know, and it mm -hmm. can, it can really dissolve into physical violence and other things, whereas in the workplace, their goal is to maintain power. 
And in doing so, they have to fly under the radar just enough, Mm -hmm. and they're experts at doing that. It's like, how far can I push this person without completely pushing them over the edge? Or maybe I'll push them over the edge, but I'll grab them at the last second. They're the master at doing that. It's a kind of manipulation that is next level that happens on the job. And often people, it takes them a really long time to figure out what's going on. And one of the things that happens is that, you know, on a job, we all have a desire to do well, possibly advance in the organization. Certainly there's a motivation to have a paycheck bonuses, maintain your standard of living. You know, wherever you're at in life, everybody needs an income. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's a tremendous motivator. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's a tremendous motivator, which makes us vulnerable to workplace abuse, things like bullying, things like threats. When you think about sales, a sales force is come and go pretty regularly. People in sales, they burn out really, really quickly. You know, if you're not like a top in the top three and getting awards and bonuses, you're basically going to be gone. Mm-hmm. And the person at the bottom is always compared to the person at the top. And, you know, in an unhealthy situation, let's say, you know, you've got some really narcissistic manager you know, they might not be so nice about letting you know that, hey, you're never going to be like this person here, or, you know, trying to triangulate with people. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, if you're not doing as well as you would like to be doing, um, you're going to feel really bad about yourself, and it's easy to focus on, well, what do I need to do to to make this person happy? Mm -hmm. How can I survive? Once we go into that survival mode, we're not really requiring a lot for ourselves. It's Mm -hmm. just getting by. When someone is really cruel at work or bullish or it can be really covert, you know, comments that it's like, was that an insult? Was that a threat? I'm not really sure. There was just something about it that you felt that it was implied, although it wasn't really stated. That happens a, a lot, particularly with somebody who's more of a, of a covert narcissist. They're really good at covering their tracks. They're making comments that are, you know, you, you kind of spin it in your head over and over and over again. And, <laughs> you know, that, that process of trying to figure out what's going on or maybe just feeling shocked and stunned that you were actually threatened or your job was threatened or there was something implied, I think people go into sort of a, almost a trauma-like state that their security may change, that your your workplace is part of your, your foundation. It's, it's part of your one of your primary sources of stability. And when that's threatened, we have like a series of mini shocks, you know, like, okay, today this happened and what does this mean? And when we're in that place, we're no longer really evaluating how bad we're being treated or that, hey, it's not me, it's it's really them, (laughs) you know, and you're just not requiring being treated well anymore because you're in survival mode. And part of that... It's, it's like a, a slow burn kind of thing where it's a slow buildup. These little 
shock things that the day is going well and overall, let's say 70% of your time at work is not abusive, but it's the buildup of these little things throughout the week or the month or your time at this company that kind of compound into the abuse. So, you know, nobody's punching you in the face and you're like, why are they beating me up? It's like these little jabs and then you you try to normalize it in your head like, well, am I just being sensitive? You know, maybe I this is the corporate world. We need to buck up and just take it because this is business, which I'm really interested in your thoughts on more collectively and more on like a societal level. What do you think has been the driving force behind creating narcissists? And Mm. when you talk about it's like a breeding ground almost, or it's like the structure of an organization and how there's ranking and how it's beneficial almost to be narcissistic. So it's almost like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the narcissistic leaders of the past kind of formulate this business place? You've touched on a really big macro point because it it is a systemic problem and it's a cultural problem. I mean, on the one hand, we tend to value extroversion in people more than introverts. You know, extroverts get a lot of attention. People want to be more extroverted. They almost apologize for being, you know, not sort of showman type of personalities. Um, Society rewards that sort of thing. I think that from the beginning of time and probably to the end of time, there are always going to be people that um, rise to the top, whether it's through, you know, cruel, aggressive means uh, or just being, you know, alpha. But I, I think that it's the manipulation, it's the, the tendency to exploit that makes narcissism particularly toxic and, you know, really can affect people's sense of well-being and their health, including their relationship. Yes. And so talking about the impact being in that narcissistic abuse has on somebody, if it goes on too long, what are some of the things that you've seen or you've been exposed to? What effects does it have physically? Like the depression uh, or people go on medications. What What are the different mental and physical illnesses that people can develop? Yeah. Well, one of the things people talk to me about is they'll say things like, and and this is something I hear often, that the minute I see that person's name in my inbox or on my phone, I feel my blood pressure go up or I I feel nauseous or I feel panicky. I feel my heart really racing. So if you're there, it's time to find the door. If you are by just seeing that person on your phone and, and you have regular communication with them. I mean, if this is just sort of a one-off once in a while that the, you have to deal with this personality, okay. But if this is a daily kind of barrage and you have that kind of physical, visceral reaction to just knowing they are communicating with you and they have, there's an expectation that you have to respond, then that is a clear sign. Now, day in and day out, your blood pressure spiking, 
your heart beating out of your chest, feeling nauseous, feeling that sense of tension. It's very hard to let go of that. Your, your, your heart rate's going to stay high, you know, for a while. It's not going to come down right away. And this is how we get things like, you know, high blood pressure, hypertension, staying in this tight, hypervigilant mode where your body is just so tight almost you're preparing to be um, for, for some kind of unexpected event that you know will be neg- have negative consequences, feeling threatened chronically. It's, it's like staying in that fight, flight, freeze mode. Like I, I, it's like I'm going to hide in my bunker until it's safe to come out. Well, when you're in your bunker, you're not really that comfortable, and it's, it's not a happy place. You, know, you might be safe for a little while, but you're worrying about what's going to happen when you finally have to leave. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing that constantly and, and, and there's this kind of chronic assault to your nervous system, these types of chronic illnesses, things like headaches, GI upset, heart problems, anxiety, certainly depression as well, you know, feeling, starting to feel demoralized and, and giving up hope that, you know, there's, there's no way out. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in some instances, that that's the case. There are people that feel very, very stuck where they are, whether it's that they've been there so many years and they don't feel like there's anything out there for them. You know, it's not well, not a simple thing to just say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go work elsewhere. Right. I, I think that that sense of being trapped and not having options are really, really punishing to your health. Yeah, it's horrible. People feel trapped. And even on my show, I've had guests who have had thoughts of suicide. And there's people out there um, who get to that point. And it's a serious, devastating state to be in. I think that when we look at, at what suicide is, it's a way out. It's a way to stop the pain. It's a way to rescue the self away from something intolerable, whether it's an internal struggle, whether it's an external struggle, or whether it's both. So I I think that severe bullying over time can have, is tremendously damaging. It's a, a trauma for people, um, particularly when there's there's no one that can rescue us, and there there's there's nowhere to go with it. Yeah, Be, being trapped and and just having to endure it, it's incredibly harmful to to anyone's mental health. It's tragic, and it's happening, and corporations are getting away with having bullies in the workplace, how do you get justice? Right, right. Well, for something like that, clearly there never will be. You, you know, abuse is, is abuse. And it, it has devastating effects on, on anyone. I, I would suspect that, that the person doing the bullying also has, you know, some kind of mental health mm-hmm. history. 
and and possibly trauma mm-hmm. and and we don't know what what, what was there right. but you know as adults we're all accountable so it really doesn't matter it's on that person to mm-hmm. get help for ag- things like aggression things mm-hmm. like anger things like you know inappropriate behavior and that's what i tell people assess your environment if you're dealing with this type of situation is there anyone you can go to? Generally, when there, the answer is no. You know, there's there's no nobody in HR I trust, or mm-hmm. there is no HR department. Mm-hmm. It's a small company, mm-hmm. or I could talk to this person, but I'm not sure. I, I have a feeling that might get back to, you know, the person that I'm concerned about. Right. That that is a, a no win scenario, and the only thing someone really can do is leave if they if they can. You know, you spend more time waking hours at work than you do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You're not even home as much as you are in the office right. if you're going to work and, right. and showing up in person. So when you think about it, it's even more devastating in, in some regard because all your waking hours are spent with this tremendous hostility and unpredictability. Right. And you can't escape because you have to be there and and you're there all day. And so really, the only way is is out. And unfortunately, some people, they they feel like there's no way out. Right. So your strategies to cope. So if you're in that environment and you and and you're biding your time, you're not leaving right now, but you know, you're getting out. How would you suggest people deal with that on a daily basis, being aware of it, but it how do you get through that? Well, the first thing is people have to understand that these psychological games and psychological abuse is is never their fault. They need to have someone in their life that's reminding them that this is not your problem. I know it they've made it your problem, but this is not about you. It's not that you're an inferior person. It's not that it's your fault. You did nothing to attract this to yourself. So really separating yourself from the behavior is critical. Self-care is huge. So noticing that if your blood pressure is going up when you're getting a text message or an email from this, you know, toxic Mm -hmm. personality, you need to start paying attention to that. If you're feeling depressed on Sunday or really, really anxious, you need to start noticing that. Building time in, time off for yourself, time to go and exercise, setting boundaries and limits. One of the classic toxic behaviors of a boss that is toxic is emailing after hours and, you know, wanting to have communication and have you be available anytime. Have, setting boundaries, turning the phone off, that is so hard to do because people walk in the next day and they're terrified. I didn't, I didn't respond to that. It's, you know, right. what's going to happen to me now? But it's necessary to protect yourself and to set limits. Um, to, to practice Grounding techniques. I mean, you can get with a therapist. You can, there are wonderful YouTube videos on how to, how to ground yourself so that you can sort of get yourself less reactive so that when someone's coming at you with something completely unreasonable, 
not something that you want to give your nervous system over to. Learning some techniques to be more of a responder versus a reactor. It's like, do I need to really engage in this? Is this more of the same crazy-making behavior? Probably. Do I need to give up my day, my nervous system? Probably not. Um, So really being able to ask those critical questions. Keeping a journal. I tell people, write down the things that you're concerned about. Keep a journal of the behaviors that you find concerning, um, that you feel are are, are, uh, abusive to you or unfair or inappropriate or threatening. And finding, figuring out what your B plan is going to be, your escape plan. I shouldn't even call it a B plan because really it should become your A plan. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. But I would also say that if you're somewhere where you really love where you are because it's the perfect job for you, this is the job of your dreams and it's, you've worked really hard to get there and it's really just one person that makes your life miserable and it's 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 not an unhealthy environment it, mm-hmm. we're talking about a person right recognize that that doesn't determine your destiny and don't allow it to talk to other people and find out whether they're going through it too whether they see what you see i mean obviously you need to protect yourself and be careful about that but I also don't suggest that somebody go running for the door uh, at the first sign of this either, because it's likely that where where you go next, you know, you 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 may encounter this again. So finding strategies where you make it clear that you have boundaries and limits, and that you're not fearful of this person. That you, you know what, I'm not going anywhere unless you can give me a reason. So one of the things that I tell people also, you know, things like gaslighting. You know, this person just gaslights all the time. I mean, you know, you just go back to the to the main thing, the main thing, the main thing. You know, just like you would if you were, you know, defending yourself, had to go to court or something. Right. You know, what is the important point here? Right. And not getting all spun around by mm-hmm. some false narrative. And that takes a lot of discipline because it's easy for us to, to become defensive, reactive. So on your website, you have your types of therapy, your coaching and mentoring, and then this EMDR. Tell me a little bit about Mm -hmm. that and how that it treats people. EMDR is for trauma treatment. And it's, it's a type of way of working with trauma that doesn't require talking in depth about whatever it is that either a traumatic memory, a traumatic event, it could be a series of events. Um, sometimes people have a very, very hard time talking about those things and they feel re, re-traumatized by retelling the story mm-hmm. and it doesn't really make it better. EMDR is based on the theory of trauma, which is more recent, that trauma is stored in, in the body. When we're traumatized, our amygdala, which is a more primitive type of place in the brain where it's our fight, flight, freeze, our sense memories, our muscle memories, they're all stored in the amygdala. And when we are under threat, our amygdala really activates 
our heart rate goes up, and we're ready to either fight or flee, right, mm-hmm. or, or, or play dead. When that happens, our decision-making part of the brain, our analytical part of the brain, our logic and reasoning part of the brain goes offline because we don't want to be slowed down by thinking too much. We want to run or we want to fight. Our amygdala is really active, and that's where trauma gets stored because we ward in our logic brain when the event happened. So what that means is that somewhere in the, the body, trauma gets almost encoded. EMDR is a method of using sound, it can use tapping, it can use rapid eye movement, and it's a way to process trauma by stimulating both sides of the brain. And the therapist will use different cues that you establish together to process feelings without necessarily talking about the trauma. And it's a way to talk to your body and and talk to your your triggered self versus your logic self, which wasn't really there to witness the trauma, if that makes sense. Yeah. And is that connected to PTSD? How when you you were saying a a client saw a name on on the emails or, you know, when you hear a name of somebody, your old boss that was abusive, you get, I mean, I get this way when I think of my old workplace. I get worked up and my blood pressure probably increases. Is that the same sort, is that like a trauma response? It, it is, and it certainly can, it, it can be. I mean, it, it can be just, you know, as simple as that this is unsafe. I don't know why it's unsafe, but I feel unsafe right now when, when I communicate with this person. Sometimes it's just your your body's alarm system goes off and it's telling you something isn't right. Where that can become, where it becomes trauma is when it's repeated and unresolved and chronic or it resembles an earlier experience in life. So let's say your boss does things that really erode your, your sense of yourself, your confidence, and you experienced past abuse, whether it, it was a parent a teacher, an intimate partner, then we're talking about really, really bad trauma, you know, because now old trauma is is reactivated by this new stimulus. So it's like the same entity, but coming out in a different, a different way in a different scenario, but it's the same sort of uh, manipulative abuse or, or whatever that triggers that. So would you say EMDR is effective? Have you seen improvement? You know, some people really, really respond well to that and others do better with mindfulness, things like becoming aware and noticing their experience without going into the trauma. Um, And there are ways to practice that every single day that are effective. Things like trauma-sensitive yoga, or really any kind of yoga. Some people prefer doing trauma-sensitive because they feel unsafe in their bodies and that it can moving around can can make them feel unsafe so working in a situation where the teacher is skilled at knowing you know really understanding trauma and can give people modifications mm-hmm. that that's really important but any kind of mind body 
um, because we want our mind and our body to talk to each other in a way that's loving and harmonious yes. <laughs> and not, you know, I feel one way, I think one thing, but I feel completely different. Yes. You know, that's yes. where stress happens. Yes. <laughs> right. I, and it's interesting, the mindfulness, and I, I have a question for you. Can a narcissist get into mindfulness and yoga and all of this Buddhist-based beliefs or just the awareness and mindfulness and get therapy that way without realizing they're a narcissist? Do you think that it's possible? I'm skeptical, I I think. I I, I have a lot of skepticism. Um, You know, people can use things that are healthy and good and also make those you know, make it into something that reflects their insides. And when you think about things like, you know, people in in churches, hospitals, religious organizations, it can things could even be yoga. They can exploit people's desire to either be a helper, a giver, or or be a spiritual person. I mean, we've seen that happen in churches. So. I, I'm skeptical that someone would, would their personality structure would change by doing a, any form of exercise without without a lot of a lot of therapy. Could it could it help regulate mood? Yes, absolutely. It's interesting you bring up churches and um, organizations that. Uh, maybe a nonprofit, and maybe the CEO is positioning himself or herself to be this wonderful, caring, loving. I, I mean, those are always the worst stories when it's like the pastor of the church, or it's almost the most dangerous when it's a it is a, an yeah. organization like that. It it is because it's someone that people look up to and trust. And, and will be make themselves vulnerable to uh, out of that belief system. That that is very very devastating when that gets exploited mm-hmm. by 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 someone who um, people look up to. It's the ultimate manipulation. So let's turn the topic now to your website. A link will be in the podcast notes. Um, but tell us about your coaching and your therapy sessions, and how to get a hold of you. Yes, absolutely. So for coaching services, you can be really anywhere in the world and, and contact me. We do our sessions online, and you can find me at my website, which is just my name. It's Leslie Miller, licsw.com. For people seeking counseling, and they're in Massachusetts, I'm, I'm licensed in Massachusetts, so we can work in a in a more therapeutic method. But for coaching and consultation, you can be anywhere. So one of the many benefits of being online now, too. So for anyone that's interested in doing an online course, and maybe they're not sure they want to do coaching like a one-on-one thing, and they want to just sort of see what it's about... Um, I do offer an online course. It's going to be um, loaded and available very shortly. I'm also developing a coaching platform in which people can do one-on-one coaching in addition to doing an online group thing. So both things will be shortly available. And I also work with with trauma and, and health and wellness-related issues. So somebody's feeling that 
they've got chronic health things going on and they're not really sure what's going on, but they know it's stress-related. Um, I also um, welcome them to contact me as well. That's fantastic. So if you're listening and you have gone through trauma, whether it's a toxic workplace or a toxic relationship or some sort of trauma in your life, head to Leslie's website, contact her. She's fantastic and has been a fabulous guest. Leslie Miller, LICSW.com. There's support groups on there. Leslie has a fantastic blog, lots of resources, facts, and free information. Leslie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Good luck with your practice and all of the success you have coming your way. You too. You too. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Do you have a story you'd like to share on our show? Go to ToxicWorkplacePodcast.com and click on Be a Guest. Fill out the submission information and we'll be in contact. Your story will be told anonymously. All names are changed to protect the privacy of the company and its employees. We look forward to hearing from you. And hey, by the way, if you like this podcast, please be sure to leave a positive review. It's much appreciated.